ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is another edition of Hard to Paint with David Grubb, and today I'm joined by a fellow podcaster and one of the most consistent guys on the Pelicans beat, my friend, my colleague, the one and only Mr. Jake Madison, host of the Locked on Pels podcast. Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be on here with you today and excited to talk some hoops, basically. Like, it's always a good discussion, and I'm excited for it. I want to start just because we haven't really gotten to talk a bunch this year because of all the things that are that are present, you know, the lack of just <laughs> yeah. media um, availability, the fact that we even at games, it, when we do go, if, if I go, you know, we're all 20 feet apart from each other. It's not really the communal experience that being a member of the media has been. Um, and in that, I think we've lost a lot interpersonally um, amongst ourselves as a group. And in, in our relationships with the team and the players, um, I think it's hurt the fans in that regard, is that we have not been able to get as much information to them that I think we would have liked, the nuance that we would like on a daily basis. Um, even in the questions in a post game, they're very controlled now. You don't get the time to talk to somebody on the side or in the pregame while they're doing shoot arounds where we get a lot of really good information how has that impacted the way you deliver your information to fans and how you get it? Yeah, no, it, it, you're right on on all counts there. This is a, a weird year, obviously, trying to cover everything. And eventually that kind of trickles down to the the people consuming the content, the listeners of podcasts, the readers of articles, the, you know, and, and everything, you know. It's, it's created it where it feels just a little bit more informational for me. Like this year, I'm looking forward to moving on from it and being able to kind of go back to the type of content that I enjoy doing a little bit more, which is a little bit more insightful. And right now at times, it's a lot of me just kind of repeating stats and also just saying Zion Williamson is really good over and over and over again, because you're missing a lot of that. You know, I, I wasn't credentialed this season for the team. I have season tickets, so I go to games anyway. And, you know, a lot of you don't necessarily need a credential to be able to just watch the game on TV and kind of critique what you see and break down what you see. There's certainly a part of being in the arena that helps with some of that, seeing the players on the sidelines, how they're interacting with each other. And that game against the 76ers is a really good example of stuff that might be lost if you're just trying to do. Uh, game coverage based off of watching it on TV. You don't see Nikhil Alexander-Walker losing his mind on every play when the Pelicans were going down the stretch, which is always kind of a sign of real good team chemistry. You know, I, I always think it's really important to almost watch that stuff more than what you see on the court. And you don't get that reported as much because it's just tougher to see and tougher to try and take in. And then the other side of it, the most valuable stuff I found from using a media credential, and hopefully they'll recredential me next season for this sort of stuff, is talking to guys in the front office or coaches or players before the game, getting for a seven o'clock game. I'm usually there around four, four thirty, and it's to have these kind of off the record conversations that then color and inform a lot of the other coverage that we give. So these guys are, you know, NBA coaches for a reason, right? As much as we want to give Stan Van Gundy crap at times, he's, he's an NBA head coach for a reason. I think I'm pretty smart with basketball. I think you're pretty smart with basketball. He knows way more than we do. 
even even if we second guess him all, all, all the time here, right? Like he still knows more and there's no chance I would get hired as a head coach. So being able to have those discussions with some of the other members of the coaching staff that then get, maybe share some insight with you that you just don't pick up because yeah, we're not in that world 24 seven like they are is really, really valuable. Having discussions with people in the front office off the record about some of the moves the team's making or how they're evaluating certain things trickles down and informs the coverage that we provide. And I think that's where it becomes really valuable and you lose a lot of that this year. Guys aren't going to text you some of that stuff that they might tell you in, in person. They don't want things in writing and what have you. So I, you lose a lot of that with it. And that's that's the part that I kind of really lament the the lack of, and that's the type of stuff that we're missing. And like you said, there's a, there's a bit of a brotherhood with covering the team. Like media day, to me, is almost always like the first day of school again. We're like, I'm excited to just go see people I haven't seen in a month or two because it's the off season, and I like saying hi to you and talking with you. And we miss a lot of that. And then a lot of the times we would sit just before the game chatting about the team, sharing ideas, bouncing ideas off each other. And it kind of refines the coverage, right? It makes it a little bit better because you might be like, no, that's dumb. Or maybe say it nicer than that, you know, and be like, no, that's not kind of right. Or I see it this way. And it gets me thinking about it a little bit more. And it just kind of elevates the whole content game. And you're seeing right now, a lot of stuff not be great because it's harder to cover now than it ever has been. So that's why these podcasts where, you know, it's tough for me to bring guests on my show because of the weird hours I record at times, but having a conversation like this with you, and I don't know where it's going to go just yet, is really valuable because it gets me thinking a little bit more. One of the things that also um, I've noticed is that over since the bubble and into the, carrying into this year, the NBA and the teams have so much more control over the messaging um, that it has impacted us just in being able to present honest looks because there are so many more filters to go through now to get that information. And you can't really even get a follow-up. And that's something too that's, that I find particularly difficult is not being able to press when you get those answers that you are not comfortable with or you need more information from. It's, there's a hard line. It's like, time's up, it's cut. And I think that that's, that's, a, that's a big detriment. I think the NBA, for all the good credit that they get for the things that they've handled over the last year or so, this is one of the areas where I think they failed. Yeah, no, definitely. There's just, it's more controlled and more structured, right? So it's, you're less likely to get kind of an honest answer or real good insight because they're worried about saying the wrong thing or you've got kind of a handler right there that's like, uh, no, no follow-up question or we're done with questions when they have an idea something might be coming. I mean, look at like the Brooklyn Nets, right? And kind of the treatment of Kyrie Irving and James Harden and Kevin, and lesser to to a lesser extent, maybe no, actually in the same extent, Kevin Durant. That whole thing with Michael Rappaport and Kevin Durant kind of blew over when he, he probably should have been pressed on that a whole lot more. And there just wasn't really an opportunity to, right? And a, for a lot of the beat writers, the name of the game is access. And you're not willing to burn those bridges by pushing a lot of the time. So it's it's a this season thing, but I also think it's kind of a larger a larger thing in general. Like Kyrie missed yesterday's game and I don't know if he's playing against the Timberwolves in the in the redo today and I don't think he is with a personal reason. And that seems like they've made agreements with him, you know, for him being there and all of the stuff that they're allowing that, but maybe it'd be great if these reporters and beat writers, I'm not really criticizing them that much. Like I get that job. It's tough mm-hmm. and you've got to kind of play this game, right? There's it's a game you got to play, game within the game kind of thing and you got to do it if you want to make money and there's nothing wrong with that 
but it'd be nice if they pushed a little bit more or maybe kind of explain what's going on, even if it is a personal thing a little bit more. That's their job. Your reporters are supposed to dig to a certain degree, and you're not seeing that, partially because there's just no opportunity to do it whatsoever. You can't go up to someone in a locker room after the game when you don't have a PR person with them and, and ask them and maybe get some more insight and kind of shed some light on some of those things. So you're seeing a lack of pushing and digging on certain topics that maybe need to be talked about more. And I, and I don't mean where people are like someone criticize, you know, you get a lot of it of yeah. like, why is Stan Van Gundy doing these rotations? It's not really our job to ask him why he's, he's making his rotations a certain way. It goes back to what I just said, right? Like I actually don't know more than Stan Van Gundy does. And there's probably a reason he's doing what he does. And it's not my job to necessarily be like, you're wrong, Stan, which I know a lot of like listeners want us to do in media availability and things, but there are other questions we should be asking and pushing a little bit more on. And that's, not what we're thinking. You could use David Griffin as an example, right? A lot of the push has been like, why aren't they going to more of a youth movement, blah, blah, blah. And I think it's a very valid question. And he did in a controlled media environment uh, on his, on kind of the, the Pelicans weekly radio show said, you know, we want these guys to value their minutes, right? They're not going to value minutes in the future if we just give it to them for developmental purposes. But the question should then switch to, do you feel Eric Bledsoe is doing a better job than Kyra Lewis Jr.? And that question's not being asked partially because it's it's team media that's that's really handling this or they have a contract with the team or relationship with the team and they don't want to burn that and fair like i'm really not criticizing them for not doing that right you got to make they a, have living a job in, to do yeah like it's totally okay but that's where we come in and put pose those things and ask those questions on our shows but you're not really seeing it pushed on the actual team people because david griffin answered that question right like fully we want them to value minutes cool get it Okay, but then it leads to another one and a follow-up, and you don't kind of get some of that stuff. I wanted to ask you this about um, where you come from, and I think it's important to see where all of us come from um, stylistically. I had a journalism background before I got onto this side. Um, what made you transition to say, I want to get really involved uh, on this level in covering basketball? So I've talked about this. I, I try. I almost tell the story like once a year on my show mm -hmm. um, because I get a lot of people reaching out like, oh, I want to do what you do. I want to get into this industry. And like other than the like joke answer of, oh, my God, please don't do that. Go do anything else with your life. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's not really a joke. <laughs> no, it's not. Look, look, I do this on the side. And, and I think it's important to mention. And I, I, I think, you know, this I've spoken a lot about this. There's like white privilege in my background on this, too, that allows me to kind of be where I am. And I wouldn't really be here without that other background. And when you look at this media game and people trying to break into it, it's really those people who kind of have an advantage of it. And I'm, I acknowledge that. So I, I had a background in writing and small journalism in college at Tulane, which is how I'm here in New Orleans from Los Angeles and was just always a big basketball fan growing up, big Laker guy growing up, you know, family had Lakers season tickets at one point. My dad, before I was born, had like eighties Lakers showtime season tickets, which is pretty freaking cool. You know, like one of the three times I think I've seen him cries, like when magic Johnson retired, like really retired the like final one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, basketball has been an important just part of my life. And so after staying in New Orleans and getting a full-time job working in banking and in finance, I didn't have money to buy season tickets. And so I bought some season tickets and halfway through that season, having a writing background, thinking I was smart. And this is also coinciding with like basically the rise of sports blogging at the time. This is 2010, kind of when it was 
not quite refined, but people could really kind of break in because there was a lot of opportunity now, much more so and much easier than it is currently. And I was like, I should just do this. I, I think I'm smart enough. I think I could talk about basketball or at the time write about basketball because podcasts weren't a thing. So I started, you know, I joined Twitter, started having some conversations with people on there. They thought I was smart. I reached out to what was called Swarm and Sting at the time because it's it's it was the Hornets, which Hornets, is the yeah. fan-sided. So I think it's Pelican Debrief now, the fan-sided site. And just asked if I could write for free, which is, which is worth keeping in mind. And I could do that because, I don't, you know, you have a job, you have free time on your hand. I don't have kids. Um, and it wasn't like, you know, I needed another job to make money and survive. So I could spend, you know, my time and treat this as a hobby, which it was for a really long time to be able to do that. And over the years, it just kind of, you know, morphed in, in snowballed to a degree as I found my voice got into this and I've just kind of stayed with it ever since. And now that I'm doing locked on Pelican, so from, um, swarm and staying went to 124 seven slash bourbon street shots, basically did the most majority of that for a while. And then left there when locked on Pelicans became more of a commitment, partially because lo locked on Pelicans pays. And I like that. And now that I'm, I just turned 35 recently. Like it's kind of at the point of, if you guys aren't paying me, I'm not doing this anymore. Cause my time becomes more valuable. My, my, my real career, the side, you know, not the side stuff. This is the side stuff. The real full-time stuff has progressed more where I've taken on more responsibility. I do more work there. I don't just have as much free time anymore. And so I value it much more greatly. So, but I had to work, I've done this for 10 years now. Seven of them were basically for free or almost no money. You know, maybe you can buy yourself an extra drink at a bar here and there, but nothing really. Like at the start of Locked On Pelicans, I think there's one, one month of, you know, five shows a week, right? So you're looking at 20-ish, 20 to 24 shows per month where it was like 40 bucks. And like, that's all you got paid. And like a lot of, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone. A lot of the bloggers, writers don't get paid anything. They do this because it's a hobby and they love doing it. So when I, when I talk to people, it's like, if you want to break into this, ho hopefully you have another job where there's income or you're, or you're set up enough where you don't need to worry about that. But if you're trying to work three jobs just to make ends meet, or if you have kids or a family that you need to take care of, it, it's a whole lot harder. And so I, I give a guy like you all of the credit in the world for really trying to forge your own way in doing this to kind of create your voice and your space in there. And I think the type of coverage you provide is really important and different from, I mean, look at me, I'm a white guy, right? Like you provide a different take and view on things that I think is really underrepresented and not out there enough. So all the credit in the world to you and kind of the, the, the path that you forged, because it's not easy to do that whatsoever. Yeah, it's. I will say this, and I don't. I'm not gonna pat myself on the back a long time, but um, I'll just say that before, really, I pushed from that, and I got that from you guys because you were out there before I was, and and Ollie was already doing his thing before I was, and that you know, Shaman and all those guys were already out there, and then when mm -hmm. I came in, I just said, "Well, there's nobody doing it on radio on a regular basis. There's nobody who's doing it on these platforms on a regular basis. New Orleans has kind of just pushed basketball over to the side." So I was like, well, let me fight for that one space that nobody's in yet. And, you know, I'm still in the podcast space and I'm still doing these things and I appreciate it. But I, I just felt like there was enough conversation. And we see that in social media. We see it in our interactions that there are a lot of people who want to talk basketball. They just haven't been given a, a large enough venue to really come together and do it. And if I can facilitate that in some way and if you can facilitate that in some way, I'm glad to do it because I love to have the conversations. 
No, it, it, you're right. And, you know, and it's kind of funny the right medium and, and this stuff's constantly changing, right? You know, like uh, 10 years ago, the, the sports blog was like wild west of that stuff. You know, <laughs> it, it was like when I look back on that, I have this really kind of romanticized view over that, but it kind of has really shaped the coverage here. I mean, you've seen the Times-Picayune and uh, The Advocate. Now they're one thing, basically, you know, really have to elevate their games because of the sports blogs, because of... Uh, the bird rights and bourbon street shots and all of the work that we were putting in at the time and really kind of shaped it. It didn't pay off for us. Like maybe we were hoping to where we get hired by those guys and that would be our full-time job. But the reason they're really good right now is because, because of people like us who have been doing this for so long, because they had to, mm -hmm. and they really had to elevate their game. So it's become better over the years. And I think it's still, you know, I, I, I know the sports radio game is weird and, I don't know. I remember what it was Larry Holder who did the article that you were featured mm -hmm. in too. And it makes me wonder if like, you know, with just any sports, does sports radio actually succeed as much as maybe we think it does? And I don't, I don't know, at least, you know, there's kind of one outlier station and that's it. So it's finding the right way to kind of present this stuff going forward, whether it's developing more internet forums, because some of the ones out there right now that are Pelican space, Oh God, it's like whatever the opposite of the wild, like romanticized wild west is, that's kind of what those places are, like cesspools of stuff. It's like basically. The, it's like and Mad Max. It's the the Yeah, there you go. It's yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's world. like Oh man, just everyone trying <laughs> fighting to survive and for those upvotes and stuff like that. And so trying to create like a community like that, I think would be great. I've seen some other things I wish we could emulate, but you need a lot of financial backing to be able to do. But podcasts do it. I'm I'm big on that locker room app right now because I do think there's a way to have really great discussion and like you know the radio part is what it's for more interaction isn't it people can listen to the podcast whenever they want it's replaced a lot of radio you don't need to listen to the sports show on your morning commute hopefully you put on lockdown pelicans are hard in the pain and it kind of just replaces that right like that's kind of what we're doing and or if you just would never listen to sports radio on your morning commute because you don't have one or whatever you you listen wherever you can and it replaces that but it loses the interactivity of people being able to call in and that's where i think some places are really starting to figure it out and i'm really excited about some of the technology and different like companies apps whatever you want to call them are coming forth and that's a big area that i think could be kind of some of the future of this stuff well, let's move off the inside baseball and go to the court <laughs> and talk some basketball now. Um, Pell's in the middle of a three-game win streak, um, taking on the Knicks tomorrow to see if they can get only their second four-game win streak of the season. Um, this team is in a very awkward place. Still 11th in the West. I am not – look, they got to go 11-7 and seven the rest of the way to get to 500. 11 of those games are on the road and they are very difficult road games in particular. The home schedule is a little bit easier, but not that much easier. Uh, I think they make the play in. I think that that's still viable, but what does that mean? Right? Like, what, no, it's, it's, it's a valid question. You know, when you're uh, they're they're very clearly trying to straddle the line between being competitive. Uh, to, I don't want to say being competitive, playing meaningful games right now but also really thinking a lot about the future, right? Like they have to, like, and I don't fault the team for trying to do it. You're in a small market. You play by different rules. You have to kind of prioritize the long-term over the short-term. Lakers don't need to do that. Boston doesn't need to do that. Heat don't need to do it. But a team like New Orleans definitely does. Even the Milwaukee Bucks kind of had to, if you look at some of the deals with Drew Holiday and stuff like that, like they overpaid him. 
But you have to do that if you're that team. Eventually, that bill is going to come due and they're going to go through a rough rebuild. But you, you have to at least think next three, four, five years, something like that. So New Orleans needs to do that. And this draft, when you look at it, is, is really good. Like last year's, you know, even though I think they got a great pick in Kyra at 13, wasn't nearly what this draft class is. This draft class, I think kind of the top tier, you know, tier 1A and 1B probably goes about eight, eight or so deep, I think. If you can land a top eight pick, top seven pick, that's a big game changer for your franchise versus landing the 10th pick, the 11th pick, the 13th pick, and maybe getting into the play-in tournament and getting in or not. And your best case scenario at that point is you lose in the first round to the Suns, the Jazz. Those are the kind of the two teams, probably going to be the top two teams in the West. And both those teams should beat New Orleans pretty handily in a seven game series. At least the Jazz would, right? And what have you gained? You know, it's nice two home games where we should at that point have more fans in the smoothie King center is exciting. Even if they lose both of those, that builds excitement for the future. It kind of put, shows they're on the right trajectory, but what's the cost of the long term? And I think that's where it, it, it's really tough. Would it be better to not outright tank, right? Like you're not going to be able to do that with Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram, but if someone's hurt, do, do you rush him back nearly as quick as you should Probably not. If they're playing a back-to-back, would it maybe be better to sit a guy like Zion or sit a guy like Brandon Ingram? And look at what just happened to Jamal Murray last night. If you don't think that's not part of them trying to play 72 games in five months, less than that in the condensed schedule, and the Pelicans just finished playing eight games in 12 nights and looked visibly exhausted at the end of that Kings game, that increases the chance for injury. Is yeah, it why do we think Lonzo Ball's hip? I mean, yeah. Lonzo Ball's hip is not going to be ready because you can't heal it up. When do you have time to heal it up? No, you don't. And so I look at this. It look, it goes back to the DeMarcus Cousins injury too, right? Like he'd been playing more than he'd ever been playing before and been playing heavy, heavy minutes. It's not the direct cause for that injury that he had happen, but it played a factor to some degree, however you want to quantify it. And so I look at that and I go, I don't know if the play in tournament's necessarily worth it. I'm not saying outright tank. Don't just sit guys to sit guys in the middle of a week game, play them. Well, why is Eric Bledsoe playing 30 plus 30, minutes. 34 minutes, 32 minutes? Play Kyra Lewis Jr. more. You know what? He might not actually play better than Eric Bledsoe does over a 30-minute period, even though in the short, smaller sample size he is. But that's kind of the way I would, I would be approaching it, and I'm a little bit confused by what this team is trying to do. But at the same point, you know, th- they want to be competitive because they think that helps these young guys. And if they do, again, this kind of goes to where there's only so much second guessing we can do because we're not in there. And we don't know some of these conversations and the data and the thoughts that they have because they're not being that transparent, nor should they. So it becomes tough to kind of look at this and evaluate it. But I don't know, the th- thought of adding a top seven pick to this young core is really intriguing to me and gives you a little bit more insurance should Lonzo Ball leave or in the future, maybe you need to mix up your roster a little bit more. Right, because you're still talking about a team that's got to make a decision about Eric Bledsoe this offseason. I don't know how you return him because when we talk about valuing minutes and he becomes subject number one when we talk about that, <laughs> Yeah, because again, if I'm a player on that roster, and day in and day out, I'm watching a guy struggle. And I'm busting my butt in practice. And I'm not saying... What Eric message Bledsoe's does that send? Right. I know I can do that. 
I know I can go one for nine tonight. I know I can, like, coach, I can do those things. He, he, he had five turnovers in the game against the Kings, and he started the game off with three straight turnovers. And when you look at I, I'm not a huge fan of individual plus minus, but sometimes it tells a story, and you're like, yeah, that matches up with what I saw. Right. Of all the starters, he had the, the worst plus minus, negative nine or seven, I think it was. I don't have it in front of me. It, it, sometimes that's kind of telling, right? And again, sometimes I, I think we look at this, and it's like, well, Kyra's playing really well in 15 minutes that may not translate to 30 minutes i remember your argument um last year for why should bam Adebayo not win most improved player over brandon ingram you said he's just playing more minutes so his numbers should be better but sometimes when guys make that leap it does not translate to the larger thing right it's not always going to just improve at a permanent basis and go in a straight line sometimes they kind of plateau at a certain thing and you're like oh they shouldn't have been taking on that larger role so when a guy does that they deserve a lot of credit for it but at this point you should at least see if Kyra Lewis can, can kind of take on that larger role. Right. And, and, and because that position, and I think that this goes back to something that Stan Van Gundy said at the beginning of the season, that on-ball pressure was the most important thing to him defensively. Well, you don't have Alonzo Ball on the, on the court, who is not great as an on-ball defender, but he's your best. No, he's, not. He, he, he's above average, but he's not good or amazing. Like no. Some people kind of want to make him out. He's a much better team defender than he is on-ball defender. Um, but you, Eric Bledsoe has not been the guy who finished second team all defense, first team all defense the last two years. And Andrew Lopez had it out there. He, he tweeted out the stat from ESPN stats and info, and it's great. He can get on the red bat phone and like call them up and get some of these numbers. But it's, it, he said, so De'Aaron Fox has had 35 points three times against New Orleans this season. You've only seen that happen with two other guys against this team where they had 35 plus points in three games in a season. It was Kobe Bryant in like 05, 06. Cool. That has no relation to this team whatsoever right now. And it's freaking Kobe. Like, go ahead. The other guy is Damian Lillard. And the other guy, the year That's Damian year. Lillard did that is this year. <laughs> like, what does that now? Clearly, you don't have Drew Holiday. Like, the, it should be worse on that side of the ball. But my God, Eric Bledsoe is making voters look so dumb for putting him on the second all defensive team over Drew Holiday and like retroactively being like, wow, you guys missed that one because there's a constant here and it's Eric Bledsoe. And so if Lillard's doing that, if Darren Fox is doing that, and we've seen it, you know, happen at other times too with other guys kind of going off in the backcourt, you know, know, or, or against this team in general, like, do you really know who Dean Wade was before that game on Sunday? Like, no, you didn't. Um, you know, but he had a career high 20, 21, I think it was. So it's like you three look at players this, get career highs in that game for Cleveland. Yeah, something like that. It's just like you look at this and it's like, okay, like this, this isn't going well. And so I haven't said on my show today, like, Stan, like, what are you doing? Like, I, I don't understand that, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not one of those people calling for him to be fired. And no. I think he's done some good this year, particularly like points on unleashing him. But the rotations and some of the starting stuff is, I don't get, like, I don't get. And I don't have an answer for it. And I don't understand what they're doing whatsoever. And it is inconsistent with things that David Griffin has been saying about young guys valuing those minutes. You want to send them that message? Sure. But as you just said, what message are you sending them right now when Eric Bledsoe plays like he does? And when David Griffin says things like that, but his actions seem to contradict those statements for two straight years now. Last year, this team was supposed to be kicking ass. Remember, that was the whole goal last year. We were going to be a team that comes out and kicks ass. And then they put out one of the worst defensive seasons ever. They weren't physical. They weren't tough. They were talked about amongst themselves as quiet, weak, soft, all those things. 
well, this year you come back, nobody's going to punk the New Orleans Pelicans. And again, a historically bad defense, maybe the worst defense in the history of the franchise. And you're not seeing the kind, it's not just the talent, it's the kind of mental construct of this team of guys who want to fight and guys who want to do anything to win. And it seems as if there's a, a push-pull when Griffin says stuff like, well, maybe I didn't give Stan enough players at the beginning of the season. How did you not know that for the last two years that you built incomplete rosters that could not do the things that both of your head coaches wanted to implement? No, it, it says a lot, right? And look, I, what what is Griff supposed to say about, you know, beating teams' asses and going out and compete? Like, he didn't have to say that, though. He didn't have to say it that forcefully. Maybe, but I think when, you know, if you do that and you go out and be like, yeah, we're going to try and be our best, like that's not sending a great message, particularly in the wake of the stuff with Anthony Davis when the fan base was in a weird spot. And, you know, that that side of it does need to get factored into it too, to a degree. Like, I don't know if my GM came out and was like, no, we're this team sucks. We're going to be bad. I'd, I'd be more worried about that than them trying to oversell it, I think, to, to a certain degree. Because what does that say, one, about their job and what to expect? And, like, why, why should anyone tune in? And that, that stuff does matter to a degree. But at the same point, you know, this is why I tweeted this out. And you and I talked about it before, before the show started where I said, you know, are these the most two depressing wins we've seen from this team? You know, in back-to-back nights over the Cavaliers and then the Sacramento Kings, two not good teams. One of them, which wasn't playing... Uh, Darius Scarlett or Colin Sexton, their two best players, and had a double-digit lead over New Orleans at one point. And Antonio Daniels, who's awesome dude, super great, and he didn't mean this as a shot or anything like that, and it shouldn't be read as that because it was actually a pretty mild tweet. He was like, there's no such thing as a depressing win. You know, bad, ugly win, sure, but not depressing. And Okay, that's fair. I get, I get what you're saying. You know, in a season where you don't have many wins, should we really be complaining that much about them? In the moment, maybe no. But this goes to something that David Griffin has said, right? And kind of ties into the, the first part of what we were talking about here, short-term versus long-term. He wants to build a sustainable winner. That's a line that's stuck with me for a while. Again, small market, different rules. It's tough to do that. You can't just reload like the Lakers do or these other teams where it's like, I want to go sign there and play for them, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have that kind of draw. You've got to do it in a more organic kind of way. And maybe it doesn't work out, right? Like the Thunder tried this to a degree and it didn't ultimately end up working out for him, but they tried and they had a lot of success there and came pretty damn close. So it can be done. And he's trying to build that, I think. But when you watch this win over the Kings, when you watch this win over the Cleveland Cavaliers, what about these two wins gives you any sort of hope for the future? And I know this sounds real bad and like very hyperbolic. And look, it's good that this young core has grown and they were able to close these games out. They would have lost both of those games at the start of the year easily, I think. They didn't. That says something. But when you're looking to try and you know, look into the future and project this team out of, oh, this team definitely will be a title contender. When you see some of the defensive effort and stuff like that, it's uh, there's 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 nothing that gives me hope or or thoughts that like oh yeah this team's going to be a juggernaut you know i don't even think they need to have a really good defense you look at you know i, I the reason i think the brooklyn nets are going to be really good is because they're going to their defense when they need to turn it on and i've watched a lot of their games this mm-hmm. year when they turn it on and they're like oh yeah we're going to try they're about league average 
That's what their defense is. But the offense is so freaking good that a league average defense will take them very, very far. New Orleans is building that kind of offense around Zion where you can almost throw whatever you want around him. And it's still going to be a really, really good offense when he's on the court, you know, minus one or two players. You can sort that stuff out. You just need an average defense. But go back to the Brooklyn Nets game. You know, they're on the second night of a back-to-back. They're down Lonzo Ball and some other guys, right? They're tired. You lose an hour by traveling. There were, you could come up with so many excuses for why they should lose. And that loss wasn't discouraging. It was how they lost. You expected them to lose. It's a scheduled L. They weren't getting back. They weren't matching up. They just looked lost. And you've seen it in both of these two games as well, both of these wins. I don't get it. At a certain point, you know, just 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 run backwards. Like that's it. That's the coaching tip I have. Run backwards. Talk to point at the dude you're supposed to guard so the other guy doesn't come over and try and guard him too, leaving De'Aaron Fox open on the left side or Kyrie Irving open on the left side. When when you look at it like that, I'm not excited about this team. I don't feel good about this team. You know, what are you expecting this team to be next year? A team that's going to light it up offensively, but you're going to need to win 145, 140 every game. And if you have a a minute or two bad stretch out there on the court offensively, which they have, you're going to lose, you know? And so that's why I called these depressing losses. And when you're trying to think about the future, should you just run this whole team back and expect it to be completely different? Oh, but they've grown because they played in meaningful games and got into the play-in tournament and then lost in the first round. Like, what is that actually going to change defensively for you going forward? So I do think, to tie it all full circle here, of maybe they need to really, you know, it's, it's like stare at yourself in the mirror for a little bit here mm-hmm. and try and figure it out. I don't have a good answer to it. And that's why I tend to think like losing and getting a higher draft pick where there are some defensive difference makers or guys that kind of project at that would be a really good thing. Yeah, I, I thought that the biggest mistake the Pelicans have made over the last two seasons is not putting more professionals around Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram. You know, it's one thing to have youth, but you can't teach seven, eight young kids at one time. No team can do that. You don't have the practice time. You don't have the resources. And you're taking in kids at 18, 19 years old who have never been challenged. They've always been the best. The guys that you've taken have been the best in high school. They played on the best AAU teams. Then they went to the best college program and they were able to dominate every step of the way. They get to the NBA and it's not easy. So you need people who can teach them these things. And that's why all of a sudden James Johnson is getting so much notice. Not that his numbers have been great, but James Johnson is getting noticed because he's not making mistakes at the level that other guys have been making. And that's the part that discourages me when, when you're talking about this, it's not just the defense, it's the consistently bad mistakes that have followed this team. It's still turnovers. It's still allowing people to get points in the paint. It's still not touching people. It's still a lack of boxing out. And you hear guys like David Wesley talk about this with Zion in particular, There's no reason he couldn't get double digit rebounds every night, but you see those times when he's not boxing out or he's leaking out and and he's not holding on to those disciplines of what he can do because you want him to have the ball in his hands more often than not off the defensive glass. He and Lonzo are supposed to be the guys who take that ball off the defensive glass. And so when Zion's not giving you 10 defense, you know, 10 boards total is three or four on the offensive end and those five or six on the defensive end. I think it does impact this team and there's an effort level and an intelligence level that I think that they have to get to. And they're not all going to get there at the same time. It's not possible. And so I think there's a, a real need 
It, uh, and it was the same as we, you could go back to that playoff team with Rondo. The biggest difference that Rondo made was not his ability on the court. It was his brain. And somebody has no, the, the ability on the court was like, yeah, other than like two playoff games was there. It was him teaching these guys how to watch film and devour that. And as you said, kind of be a professional and look, they, they, they tried that with JJ Redick, right. And it didn't quite work out. And you got to wonder to some degree was JJ Redick, like, is he a little bit checked out on the end of his career? Maybe it seems like there's a lot of other interests that maybe play a factor into that too, but they've tried some of that and it hasn't totally worked either. So it's, again, it's, how do you, straddle this line and it's just not easy to do whatsoever of short term be competitive but also long term and yeah like that's where you know david griffin gets some sort of credit here because it's a tough job and but it's also the job and you've got to do it Uh, on griff i want to just ask you this he gets very public at times and it's the times when it benefits him to be public I don't know the voices of 99% of the the vice presidents or GMs around the league. They don't do press conferences. You don't hear from them. They don't make proclamations. They don't retweet. But Griff pops up every now and then. And there has always been a bit of a salesman element to him for me um, that kind of gets in the way of the basketball part. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that part, sometimes it's just, it feels... And I'm not saying it's going to ultimately impact whether or not he's successful at this job, but sometimes it feels as if there's still some type of search for validation based on what happened in Cleveland and that he wants to make sure that he's in the middle of the discussion whenever the Pelicans, if and when the Pelicans do become a better team. No, that's an interesting thought. So, you know, I I don't follow other teams as close as this one, obviously. So I couldn't tell you so much, you know, like uh, these guys talk, these guys don't, or if this is normal or not necessarily kind of the norm. But I agree with you that it does seem like he probably speaks to the media a little bit more and like fully agree with you that there's a little bit of kind of like car salesmanship to it, which I think they, they need to a degree, right? Like they've had issues with some attendance, with some the fan base and all of that. A lot of that's their own doing too, and just not putting a good product out there on the court. If they're winning and they win consistently, you'd capture people for life at that point, but you can't do it when you only get into the playoffs every three, four years. You know, this team has only been in existence for around 20 years or so, and they've made the playoffs less than half the time. They haven't been consistently good since the Chris Paul era, since the kind of the middle of the Chris Paul era more so, you know, like we're talking like 07, 08 and being around that time tailing off around 2010, the last year of Chris Paul. And even before that, they weren't good the year before that because of his injury and other things. So if you can't build a consistent winner where you get in the playoffs three, four years in a row, it's really tough. And so they're trying to almost like sell you on this, like so, so much. And that's where it comes off that way. And I think they need that to a degree. Otherwise it would be really easy to not hear a whole lot about this team at times. And so that's, I think a good thing, but it does come off a, a, not desperate, but the, the way I kind of see it is they try and control the narrative and they're not necessarily great at controlling the narrative and they say things and then kind of don't realize the hit or the impact it's going to have. And then they almost have to course correct a little bit too hard. And I think that's kind of some of it. And it's usually pretty obvious when someone's trying to course correct a little bit too hard. And I was, I was genuinely shocked after the JJ Reddick podcast stuff came out that you didn't kind of see David Griffin go on like a PR offensive because that's usually when he would. All of a sudden you'll realize people are like, what the hell's going on with this team? There's kind of grumblings all around. Us as media are kind of echoing that stuff because we agree with it. And then David Griffin gives an interview 
in a controlled environment, right? It's, it's, it's on their, it's on the broadcast. It's on, you know, their radio show. It's through their channels. It's not necessarily with the athletic or ESPN where there's a little bit less control of it. They send out a controlled message to try and kind of calm that stuff down as they should, but it kind of comes off as like, not, not, you know, as Sally, right? Like that's the way to put it. And so you can kind of feel a little degree of disingenuousness in it. And I think that's where you see kind of some of the disconnect with this stuff. I have a quick, quickly hit on the JJ thing. And my problem with it was not, you know, everybody wanted to talk about how JJ felt entitled and all these things about that. And that wasn't the problem for me. You know, trades happen. This is how it goes. This is the business. Um, I just felt like it, it, it showcased a lack of communication. And yeah. that's the problem. It's not that JJ got traded to the Mavericks. That's it. The ultimate destination isn't the deal. And I think even for JJ, ultimately, if he felt, and again, we weren't in these conversations. We didn't hear them. We don't have transcripts of them. Um, but if JJ felt that he had a commitment from Griff of honesty, that I'm going to work with you, come back, play for a month. And if you dig it, you'll stay. If you don't, we'll work something out. If that's the conversation. And then three or four times after that, we've had a conversation. And then you do this afterwards. Well, your credibility is a problem. If you come to me and you say, JJ, we tried to make your deal work to send you somewhere you want to go. There are no offers out there, man. And we got to get something in return. We wish we could buy you out, but we need to get something in return. There's a better deal on the table. I'm sorry. This is the business. I think that that could be handled and viewed much differently than I didn't get any communication. And all of a sudden I'm going to Dallas. Yeah. He found out when he was in the middle of like a yoga class or something like that. And like, yeah, that way, again, that's, that's the biggest point, you know, at the time, and look, I think David Griffin's been very validated by that trade, particularly with James Johnson, you know, yeah, yeah, it has nothing to do with the players. No. Well, I mean, look at at one point I thought it was my initial reaction to that was you really going to create this headache for a second round pick and James Johnson in West of one (laughs) do. Like, okay, I get you. Like, a one dude shouldn't have been playing, shouldn't have been starting, right? Like, that's a guy who's maybe not going to be in the league next year. James Johnson, they were like, it was like us with Nicolo Melli. They were happy to be rid of him. And the second round pick is supposed to be maybe in the 50s. Like, at that point, is it worth a negative PR hit and kind of potentially hurting your reputation around the league with agents and players? Maybe not for that kind of return. Now, James Johnson has stepped in and validated that trade, I will say. But at a certain point, you need to kind of evaluate that stuff, right? And maybe the Pelicans didn't do a good job of that and David Griffin kind of overextended it. What the hell are you doing guaranteeing things to J.J. Redick at this stage in his career in the first place? And that's that's. But I agree with everything you said, right? Like those are kind of the big questions around what, what went on with all of that stuff. As we go into the players, we, we've, I'm not going to go on Bledsoe anymore, but let's talk about our, the two cornerstones, supposedly, in Zion and B.I. Zion is, is a cornerstone. That is cemented. You cannot change it. Cornerstone, keystone, whatever. Um, his growth has been so noticeable offensively. Some of those things you just can't teach, obviously. Um, but his recognition has improved. But I've also seen subtly over the last few games – um, last month or so, his defense has gotten better. It's not good, but you're seeing more recognition. You're Same with Jackson Hayes. There's more recognition of things. And that's going to happen just with time. It's still, there's also, but that, that consistency of effort and that, con- that knowledge of your responsibilities and the responsibilities of other players is still the biggest place that I think he needs to grow and then on the other end, I'd say offensively, the one thing I would ask of him is probably, A, the Pelicans probably need to find other ways than just him bringing the ball up to have the ball in his hands. And the second part would be, 
can he get a catch in the post and convert that in some way or another? But those are things that evolve. We still haven't gotten to 82 games yet, but that's just where I am with Zion right now. Yeah, it, it's it's really tough to like critique his offensive game at least. And like if we are, it's nitpicking, and that's right. fine too. You know, like look, there's there's more focus on him and more kind of expectations on him. He's the first overall pick. He was the best prospect coming into the draft probably since Anthony Davis and probably the most hyped prospect coming into the draft since LeBron James, right? Like those are the two guys he's kind of in comparison with for the number one overall pick. When you have those, like the expectations, whether fair or unfair are going to be unreasonably high, but that it's the territory, right? Like it's part of the job. This is how it goes. And so we, we got to approach it as such. And so offensively, no, it's like everything I'm happy with. Like, yeah. yes, at a jumper, maybe a three-point shot. If that, I don't know if he will. But if he gets that little like mini turnaround over the right shoulder he hit the other day, like good luck stopping him and good luck stopping him now. You look at the lineups they threw him in, right, in last night's game. At one point, you had Jackson Hayes, Billy Hernan Gomez, Westside Wundu. Maybe it was Kyra and like him on the court. He shouldn't be able to score in that crap of a lineup. And he does easily like easily everyone knows what he's doing and no no one can stop him it's unbelievable to watch so offensively like it's great it's cool defensively he's he's a good enough one-on-one defender when he's defending the person with the ball in their hands he's fine right like most young guys are at least good at that side of thing it's the help defense it's the awareness that is really lacking and as you said he hasn't played a full 82 games how much are we really expecting from a rookie to contribute on that? It takes like Anthony Davis wasn't really good defensively until you're four or five. That's when he started getting in the defensive player of the year conversation. And Zion wasn't up to his level defensively. Oh no, not so should we be though. expecting that much from him? Pro- probably not, but he was the number one overall pick. He had a ton of hype in. So the expectations are there on him, but it's those little things, right? It's just, can you get turn around and run and get back? Can you, can you match up with the guy you're supposed to match up with? Those are the things that are really disappointing, but ho- and, and hopefully that comes with time. And those are the things that are at least a little bit easier. I think to fix, he keeps his hips level, right? Mm-hmm. Parallel with, with the guy he, he's guarding. He's not getting turned around. He's not getting spun. He's at least able to keep up with these guys. I think that's great. You know, you mentioned the rebounding. His rebounding's really improved. As you've seen less of Steven Adams, I think part of it is they just don't need him to rebound, so they don't really put him in position to rebound. But it's shown that he at least can grab defensive boards when the opportunity presents itself a little bit more and you don't have a guy like Steven Adams or some of these others kind of getting those boards. And so I feel good about him in, in that regard. It's just this team is going to get made or broken in the future based on the defense, right? Because the offense we know is going to be good. And if Zion can at least not get like lose his man who just do easy backdoor cuts, like there's nothing fancy going on. It's not like they're running these guys through screens or trying to do anything like that. It's just, he's got his eyes on the ball over here. This guy's over here. And that guy then moves and he looks around. It's like, where the hell is the person? And now that person's got an easy shot. That gets figured out, I think. Like, of all the things, like, I don't know if he's going to be an elite defender, but at least that stuff gets figured out, and I feel good about that uh, for the most part. Brandon Ingram, the next guy I'm assuming we're going to talk about, not so much. (laughs) Yeah, B.I., you know, stats-wise, last year, this year, it looks very similar. But I don't think we've seen the growth out of Brandon Ingram that we expected. Um, Defensively, that was what we were supposed to see from 
the, the outset of his career. He was talked about potential as an elite defender as much as he was talked about as a scorer and a facilitator. We have not seen that in two years in New Orleans as a defender. We have seen some careless decision-making when he gets caught in his brain between should I shoot it or should I pass it? We still see some turnovers. We see the over dribbling at times. And it statistically, it's it's been consistent throughout this season. He gets worse as the game goes on. His shooting gets worse. His decision-making gets worse. All those things get worse as the game goes on. That is a difficult thing to have when you're talking about the guy who's going to have to a lot of nights be your perimeter closer paired with Zion. So, so BI is the, the real interesting one, right? Because kind of the looming question over this team right now is, does he fit with Zion long-term? And I, I think you're actually seeing a lot of positives in regards to that offensively. And I'll touch on defensive in a second here, because that's where my big concern is his numbers this season are basically exactly the same as they were last year when he's an all-star, which I think is kind of incredible, right? He averaged basically 24 points per game last season. He's averaging exactly 24 points per game this season. He's doing it on the same shot attempts. I'm rounding up here, but it's 18 last season, 18 this year. He's actually shooting better from the field this season a little bit than last year, a little bit worse from three-point range than last season. His turnovers are actually down. He's dishing out half an assist more per game this year, and he's averaging about a, a rebound less per game. That, that is remarkable consistency for taking on a different role and all of a sudden not being the focal point of the offense. When you look at his shot chart, it's significantly different than last year because he does not have – space doesn't impact Zion – but a lack of or a lack of spacing doesn't impact Zion, but a lack of spacing definitely impacts Brandon Ingram. He, he does not have the ability to get to the rim like he was doing last year. It's half as much this year as last year. I think it's okay, though. Sure, you'd like him to have the more efficient shot chart of getting to the rim, but if he can work as a complementary player to Zion like this and average the same numbers, s- sign me up for that. He's a very, very good mid-range shooter, kind of a bit of a lost art, And at this point, you'd be like, oh, it's going to regress to the mean and maybe his numbers should drop down because if he hits more close to his like career average or league average from mid-range, the numbers should really drop. They haven't over the course of the year, and I don't necessarily think there's a reason to believe that they will. And so if he keeps this up, offensively, it works for the most part. Um, And I like that. I like that he can shift to a dramatically different role and still maintain this pretty high level, all-star level of production. The only reason he wasn't in the all-star game this year is you had to pick one of Zion or him and they were going to give it to Zion. He's it's the exact same numbers. No reason in theory on stats that you should have kept him out the problem. So I, I like their fit because of that. It works and they can kind of take turns. The problem is at the end of games, I think when it becomes a bit of a jumbled mess of, okay, who, who's going to be the guy. And that's where they have some issues with it. Last night, it was, uh, it was Brandon Ingram for the most part kind of being the closer. But we've seen at times where it's not. They, we've seen at times where they just get away from Zion, and I don't know why. And they need to figure that stuff out. That, I hope, is something they could figure out because I do think these guys, at least offensively, do actually mesh. It's just a more inefficient shot chart from Brandon Ingram. And if you're a BI stand, that sucks for you. But you know what? It's working for the team. And I think offensively, they're going to be able to keep that up. And if BI is cool with it, like, great. Like, there's no reason to complain kind of about this sort of situation. Defensively, though, he's been really bad this year. He's improved a little bit over the past couple of games, but he's been bad. You know, I talked about Zion at least not getting beat individually one-on-one. Brandon Ingram is, and that's a concern. This isn't... 
year one for him, year two for him. This is year five for him. At some point, you, you make a jump or you get better on that side of the ball, and he's not. You know, there's, there's kind of no other way to say it. He's been bad defensively. He has a lot of the tools, right? The good length. He doesn't have the strength, but they're not asking him to battle in the post against he's not the guy. Great. He's not great with his lateral movement. He's not a... No, a quick, he gets spun guy. around a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Like, But that length should allow some of this to be a little bit better, and it's not, and that's a concern. At times, he just doesn't look interested on that side of the ball. And when it's that inconsistent effort, that worries me. So as, as we go back to what we were saying earlier about you know, this team doesn't need an elite defense. They just need good enough. This puts so much other pressure on the other three guys. And that's where it's like, Alonzo Ball, as you said, is not a great team defender, or he's, he's a better team defender. So it fits in there. But what about the other two you need to kind of figure out, right? Like that's not easy to do. And it's tough to find guys that are real good two-way guys. It, you need two, three and D dudes out there, right? Th- those don't just miraculously exist that can guard wings and, and have positional versatility. And so I think that's a big part of the problem in the roster in trying to figure this team out going forward. And that's where it's like, maybe at some point you just need to jettison Brandon Ingram. You don't need to do that right now. No. But at a certain point, you're just like, he's not going to figure out it out defensively. We can get close enough to him offensively, and it'll work around Zion Williamson, so we need to make a big change. Yeah, because you know, the thing for me for B.I. on the offensive end is I, I, he needs to move more without the ball. And like you said, the, the mid-range jumper is there. It's it's just that I wish he would watch some more Reggie Miller tape. I wish he would watch some more tape of how to use screens to not have to work so hard. Because I, you know, I've, been, I've been doing it all year. I've been like counting the shots when he takes three dribbles or more. And that's been my thing on Twitter. It's like, yeah, B, I took five dribbles. He, he's, go, he's likely going to miss the shot. Because it's it's like you said, he's not that guy who's just going to break you down off the dribble and get to the rim that way. It's if he puts it down one and gets that length that explodes, it's a great finish. But if he's looking and searching, he tends to get a little, he gets caught in his head. But the defensive part is, is my biggest word for him. And I like, I'm not about trade behind now either. Um, I think it's a very no, not at all. thing to have those two guys together as stability and, and, and consistency. But yeah, at some point it becomes a question, much like it has in Portland with CJ McCollum and, and Dame. Yeah. Did you go too long with this duo? Did you max out what they had and now you need to move on from it? That's a question they have to answer. Same with DeRozan and with Kyle Lowry. It got to the point where those two guys were your stalwarts and they were all-stars and they took you to conference finals, but they weren't going to go any further. And so you had to make a change. And I think that's, if you're the Pelicans, I think that's a scenario you're, you want to have in, in, in the back of your mind is one of those two that they develop. And if we don't get there, we're able to flip it for something that gets us there. Um, but those two are clearly what this team is building around going forward. But it seems as if also David Griffin is no high, less high on Jackson Hayes than he was in the day he drafted him. He's obviously still extremely high on Nikhil Alexander Walker, who at least they have figured out that he's not a point guard. And I think that was huge yeah. in understanding that. And then, but, uh, you know, and then you have the Josh Hart issue of I love everything Josh brings to the table, but physically asking him to defend threes every night and then his, his the struggle that he has sometimes with second units, because, again, he's a guy who cannot create his own shot. He is right. He can do it in transition. He can finish, but he's not a guy who creates his own shot. And that second unit is devoid of guys who create their own shot. So I think there's still a lot of these pieces that even though you may like them, 
some of them might have to go in order to get the things you need. Yeah, no, I mean, you can, the flaws on this roster are just so apparent, you know, it's, but they also show such promise and such potential, which might make it difficult to move some of those pieces in the future, right? It's, that's why kind of that Philadelphia 76ers game, we talked about this before we started recording, you know, kind of showed you some of the highs of New Orleans, right? Like, how can you go out and beat that team in pretty handily and then play these close games against the Cavaliers and the Kings? And it almost leads you to thinking this roster could be like fool's gold, right? Like, you're on a 3-0 and winning streak, but... Uh, two of those wins weren't great, and maybe there's some issues. But but the you Kings had a seven-game win streak early this year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the Kings had a seven-game win streak. So oh, they were they looked like a playoff team at one point. And so you know you've got to be careful falling in love with your thing, your pieces being like, oh, they'll just improve. They'll get a little bit better every year because they're young, right? Like that's kind of the progression you assume. It's a step up, a step up, a step up. Then you're a title contender. You look at some of this stuff and it's like, I, I don't know about that with this roster. You know, I, I'm really high on Jackson Hayes. I was really high on them drafting him in the first place. And I loved him. And in a couple of mock drafts I did with the Pelicans trading away Anthony Davis, hypothetically in those, I basically drafted him in every single one. So I'm like going to hold on to that island till I die, basically. Um, and you're seeing what he provides. It's great. But other pieces, like you can't overpay Josh Hart. For what, for what he gives you, you know, at a certain point, you've just got to be like yeah, Eric Bledsoe in. And I think like the odd man out could be a guy like Nikhil Alexander Walker who, who can't create his own shot. He's an off ball guard. who's an inconsistent shooter. He is going to have nights where he goes off when he's, you know, four of six or six of eight, kind of what have you. But those are definitely few and far between, not few and far between, but you need a little bit more consistency. I think sometimes instead of the boomer bust mentality or like aspect of his game, particularly because, you know, bench units, they're not supposed to carry you, right? Like, we don't need to overthink this. Your starters are your starters for a reason. They're the group that's supposed to go out, beat the opponent. Your bench comes in to give them rest, and you just hope the bench doesn't screw up enough that when your starters come back in, they're in a deficit. If your bench plays at a net zero, you're freaking thrilled about that, right? You're thrilled about that. And we've seen so many times before that the Pelicans bench, especially early on in the season, was such a net negative, they were just never going to be able to overcome that. Just get quality guys that do just enough and don't overthink it and, and get that out of the bench. And you'll be pretty good, I think. Like, you'll be a playoff team here in New Orleans with that because of B.I. and, more importantly, Zion Williamson. But they do need to figure out some of that bench stuff because, as you said, there's not really a secondary – there's not really a creator in there other than Kyra Lewis Jr. They're not willing to give him tons, tons of minutes right now. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, and he's 19 and he doesn't have a great outside shot yet. So physically, right. he's not able to do a lot of things that he could be able to do in the future. It's just it's a lot to ask of him at this stage. And then you add up all the fact that every one of these guys and, and this year, too, you know, the Pelicans were relatively injury free. They still have the lowest not, amount of missed games in the league. But now you start to see that catch up again with guys who are familiar to being on the injured list. And that is always a problem to see the same guys who were there. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're injury prone. It just means right hey, we can't keep losing these guys because there's a huge drop-off to the next guy. From Lonzo to his, to the, to his, uh, to Kyra, to, to whomever, or to Bledsoe, whomever's filling in for him, there's a big drop-off. From Josh Hart to whomever's filling in for him, there's a big drop-off. And that can't be the case as deep as it is. And I think that that's, that's something that the Pelicans really need to address is like you said, it's just about holding the tide. And having maybe that one difference maker on the bench who can get hot for you and give mm -hmm. you some things. And then that one defensive difference maker on the bench who can guard multiple positions, get you some stops and do those types of things. 
And that's why we're so ecstatic over James Johnson. He's well past his prime in that regard. He's 32 years old. He's not going to get any better, but he doesn't make mistakes. He's not out of position. He knows what he's supposed to do. If you had four or five more guys like that on this roster with those the, that, that young core, and that made up your 15, I think you'd be a lot more uh, satisfied with the results at this point than where we are. It would have changed the Pelicans early in the season, right? Remember when Absolutely. Jackson Hayes was terrible and they dropped him for Billy Hernan Gomez and Hernan Gomez wasn't playing great. He was just not making mistakes. He was like league average, maybe a little bit below league average. And that made a world of difference to the second unit, a world of difference to the second unit of just playing solid, like solid, but unspectacular basketball or like average, but unspectacular basketball. Like James Johnson gives you that. When, when he came over in the trade, everyone's like, oh, they got an asset for J.J. Redick. I'm like, James Johnson's not going to give you anything special. He's actually overplayed, well overplayed what I thought. And you know what? That's kind of what they needed because it shored up some of that stuff because J.J. Redick was like well below average during the, his stretch here. So you kind of put that in and it just adds it, – it, it, it raises your floor, right? Like that's kind of what it does. It doesn't necessarily raise up your ceiling, but it raises the floor. And sometimes that's kind of all you need, particularly against bad teams like the Cavaliers and the Kings. And that – Solid bench play has kind of really surged New Orleans a little bit to a degree. You know, they kind of lit it up against the Kings. That's where that big lead came from was that second unit in the first half with Jackson Hayes playing out of his mind and kind of doing everything for New Orleans. So getting those guys really, really helps. And yeah, so, you know, more depth when you're when you're that strong to start. Like they don't need to do much to the starters, I don't think. I think the starting lineup, if they figure, you know, other than maybe make a tweak here or there to kind of try and shore up the defense, but let's say that improves. Yeah, the blood so part. But like, yeah, you know, if, if BI takes half a step on that side, you, you figured out kind of with Eric Bledsoe in the garbage that that's been, that's a really good starting lineup. You just need the backups to at that point kind of hold you and you'll be, I think, in a pretty good spot to at least be a consistent winner, if not title contender. Yeah, if, if they can be, I think if they had two things. A, a real veteran point guard on this roster who was a little bit longer. Again, this team, it, it, one of the things I think it, 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 that people don't realize is how unathletic this team is. Like Jackson and Zion are so athletic that they make you forget that most of these guys are not in the, in the main rotation. Steven Adams is not a super athlete. You know, Brandon Ingram is not a super athlete. He's not going to finish over people. You don't have a bunch of guys who are, who, have, who are what you would call, you know, guys with bounce. That's not the kind of team right. this is. So I think it needs some athleticism. It needs some more length at the guard position. It's a lot of guards, six four and under. And that was the problem even with Drew, was that you had a lot of little guards. And then you don't really have any depth on the wing. Your wing is are, are your wings are too short or too or too thin um, at that spot. If you can get those two things, I think you can find enough bigs for this roster. But it's those two areas that have been the most difficult for the Pelicans. I think the last two seasons, especially that backup point guard spot having a keen decision maker, somebody who can just run your offense for you when, when your point guard's oh, not on the floor. that would be so helpful. Just to get people in the right spot. Again, yeah. that's something that's that maybe wins you an extra three or four games over the course of a season. Yeah, and, 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 that, and that's a huge thing, right? Like, that would be gigantic for the team to have three more wins, let's say, at the end of the year. They'd be above 500 at that point and, like, solidly into the play-in. So, I mean, you see, that's where you see 
for all of his limitations and, and you can hand ring over Lonzo ball a lot, having a guy that can at least kind of like order someone to go to a certain place is a very useful player to have. And maybe you kind of use him a little bit differently and more with that second unit to kind of help keep them organized. Cause clearly they can score and they're okay offensively without him in there, but there's ways to do it where it would really work. And that's kind of one of the things you're seeing with the team right now is uh, point guard, even with point Zion is, is still a real useful guy to try and have and figure out what this team needs to be doing. Lastly, let's go into this schedule these last 18 games as they make this, this run to whatever, whether it's the playoff game or somehow find themselves in the top eight, um, the seven home games, they got Knicks, Nets, Spurs, Clippers, Golden State, two times in the Lakers. Uh, those seven games, if you can go four and three, I'd be shocked. If they go four and three, I'd be shocked. So I think the end of this, the end of the season is going to come down to them playing the Golden State Warriors, right? They play right. the Lakers times. game is the last game of the season. It won't matter to either team. It won't matter to the Lakers for sure. I doubt. No, it shouldn't. Unless the Lakers really blow it over the next two weeks before they get Anthony Davis and or LeBron James back. And look, they, they may fall. There's a chance that they end up falling well, close yeah, to the playing tournament. Yeah. You know, they're at five right now. They For them, they just got a little bit lucky with the injury to Jamal Murray. But the way things look for them, you know, they, they're only five games up on Memphis for the in the win column for the eighth spot. Like, they, they could get pretty close to the play-in, but they're, they're eking out enough wins to avoid that. But that game may matter to them, but likely won't. So you kind of throw that out, right? They're going to probably rest LeBron James or Anthony Davis, one or both in that, um, especially with them kind of coming off injuries to end the year. You know, I, it's going to come down to the Warriors games. And do you think this team can stop Steph Curry? That Warriors team is in a bad spot, especially just losing James Wiseman right now. They, you know, there's no other bigs on the buyout market for them. Like, there's no one they can really add to replace that, and they need him for what they're lacking. It's going to come down to, I really truly think this. Can can you defend Steph Curry over three games and just contain him enough to get those wins? That's the team you're competing with for the for the tenth spot. I don't really think it's the San Antonio Spurs. They're they're good enough here, but it's going to be Golden State who is going to be in bad spots to try and get into the 10th spot. So New Orleans in a way kind of controls their own destiny with those three games. And you've got to probably go three and zero against the Warriors. If you want to get in. Yeah. Cause the road is ridiculous. I mean, the wizards are playing much better basketball. And then you're talking about again, a backcourt that beat up on you without Russ, you know, and Russ mm-hmm. has been playing much better as of late. And this is a team that's gotten healthier um, as well. And they play better basketball. Then you've got the Knicks at home uh, on the road too. And again, that's a 500 team and they will defend at the very least, you know, Tom Thibodeau is going to, it's, it's, I'm really interested to see how this matchup with Zion and Randall goes, especially because of the bad Zion Randall comparisons that went on before, but then you get uh, Orlando's a team. You should beat. the nuggets now are more vulnerable without Jamal Murray. Oklahoma city's a, a game. You should win. Minnesota's a game. You should win, but then you get Philly, that five-game road stretch of Philly, Charlotte, Memphis, Dallas, and Golden State. Yeah. that's And that's how you end your season. Yeah. You, no, look, this the schedule, they've got no favors in this, right? And they've kind of had good you know, stretches where they should have really taken advantage, and they haven't. And it's disappointing. And now they're kind of on the outside looking in when they should be on the inside looking out and really controlling their own destiny more. You know, I think the Philadelphia 76ers are actually a decent matchup for New Orleans, but Joel Embiid is going to be 
hunting them in kind of in a revenge game. That dude doesn't forget things. That makes that one and a little MVP bit. votes. He's also looking. For, yeah, and know, MVP, that's a really statement. good point. You know, and we've seen New Orleans struggle with all the other teams. Denver, maybe you can win because they've had some success against them. The Lakers, we'll see if that game matters. But the Clippers, the Brooklyn Nets, and even the Dallas Mavericks are real, real tough ones. And then you look at the easiest opponents left, right? Timberwolves now have already beaten New Orleans twice. And now I have D'Angelo Russell back. And he's averaging like 25 points per game since he's come back. Guards have lit up New Orleans. That game doesn't look nearly as winnable as it once did. Wizards. Bradley Beal's still really freaking good, and they just ended the Jazz's 27 home game winning streak. It's a little bit more dicey than you would have liked. And that game that the two played earlier in the season was really close, right? Like that was one of those and that ugly, non inspiring world. They yeah. really didn't have anybody else on the floor that night. No, and it wasn't the most inspiring win for New Orleans, those depressing wins that I said that you look at it and you're like, I don't really believe in this team going forward. Okay, the Orlando Magic, clearly young guy. You know, you can kind of lump in the Magic and the Thunder together, right? Just a young team that's going to try harder than you because those guys are hungry for minutes and they're placing the league next year. They're going to come up and they're going to punch you in the face when you're not looking because you just weren't prepared for them and you thought you were better. And the Pelicans haven't really seemed to learn their lesson from numerous games like that this season. So I'm more worried about those than you should. You, you, you pencil in a win on the schedule when you see that, but not, not totally sure about that. And then three games against Golden State. And Curry could go off. He did last night, you know, against the Denver Nuggets. Again. Yeah, like he, he was good. And the, and the Denver Nuggets didn't lose Jamal Murray until the very end of that game. And I think they won by nine points, almost double digits. Uh, the, the Warriors did. These are not the winnable games you look at. You kind of look at and you're like, oh, those aren't so winnable once you kind of dive into the situations around the opponents. And that's going to be tough. And I've been asked this question whenever I go on radio or do anything with, you know, talking about this stuff. Can the Pelicans get in? And I go, there's just nothing about them right now that make me think they should be able to get in. I actually think like based on the surface level, look at this, right? Oh yeah, they have a real good shot of getting the 10th spot and at least getting into the play-in. Then you really think about it. I'm like, I don't know because I don't think this team's going to play any defense and the defense they're going to need to play to beat some of these easy, in theory, easy teams that they face. And they, they have to win games consecutively. Like, that's the thing, too, is you can't keep doing this one win, one loss, or two wins, two losses. And that's the way they played this whole season. And I just don't think that changes over these last 18 games. I don't think that all of a sudden you get a new identity as a team, especially when you, you have these injuries that you do have, when you don't have a Josh Hart the rest of the regular season, when you might not have a full-strength Nikhil Alexander-Walker until the last week of the season, when Lonzo Ball, you don't know how his hip is going to respond the rest of the way, you take this shorthanded team and you're going 11 times on the road where they are not a particularly good road team and they're not good against teams that are below 500 and they're not good. <laughs> so it's like all There's these a lot things you, taken- you just said there. Uh, no, I'm with you. I'm entirely with you. You know, they went through a stretch about a month ago where the defense started to look a little bit better, right? But then you've watched it recently and it's like, I don't know. And then you kind of look at those games they played. They, you know, they beat the Dallas Mavericks without Luka Doncic or Chris Porzingis. Should we read that much into that win and the defense in that one? Same with the Lakers game, right? Like where you don't have LeBron James or Anthony Davis. So I do wonder if that was a little bit of smoke and mirrors just based off of opponents being really, really banged up. And now when teams aren't as banged up, or trying really hard, the Pelicans have really, really struggled. And again, 
you know, you, you had that game against the Brooklyn Nets where the team just looked terrible. And then a couple nights later, you still look bad defensively and are making some of the same basic mistakes, right? Like I saw a lot of people trying to give excuses to this defense in that Brooklyn game. And it's like, there's, there's no excuse uh, 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 for not getting back and not matching up. You can't blame that on, oh, well, it's guys they just signed off the street and Isaiah Thomas playing. Man, you can put five guys out there and make sure they know how to match up and they should be able to match up. It doesn't matter. Right. Just get, turn around and run is not a chemistry on the court issue. And so until those mistakes for an extended period of time, which you don't really have the rest of the way, right. Get fixed. I'm not buying into like, I'm not buying into this team. I wish they were good. It does me no good for my show to talk about how bad they are and that I don't think they're going to get better. That means you're not going to tune in the next day, but I've got to be honest with the takes here and kind of lay it out there. And there's nothing that I've seen from them. That's going to make me think that like those things get figured out this season. And so that probably leaves them on the outside looking in of the 10th spot, which probably is where they deserve to be. And if you're the team, that's maybe better for you in the long term. because look at the top of this draft. And I'd much rather have a 30% chance at a top four pick than a 30% chance of getting into the play in tournament and an even smaller percentage of getting out of the first round. Absolutely. I, I, I am, I should, I will never advocate for players not trying. Never. I mean, you know, that's no, never. I'm with you on that. Win. But let's be realistic. It doesn't help them this year to go to the postseason. It doesn't help. It's good. Like you said, it's good for the owner. It'd be, it's, it's good it'd for be nice. Coach. It'd be fun. We'd enjoy it. But if you're trying to build a sustainable winner, a long term winner in New Orleans, what's more valuable? Especially when. And we'll wrap on this, especially when your Milwaukee and Lakers assets have been devalued. Yeah. Because they are no well, even, longer what you thought they were when you got them. And, and the best one you're going to have a chance of, right, with the Lakers pick being – this is the best it's probably ever going to be, I think, to a degree. Yeah. And unless we get into some weird thing. This is the worst Lakers team we're going to see right now because LeBron and AD are out. You don't get the pick this year unless it's in the top eight. It's Or, yeah, it's reverse protected, right? It, they get, the Pelicans get it if it's one through eight and don't get it if it's eight or worse. So you're not even going to get their 22nd pick in the draft this year, which would have been the best that that pick probably is ever going to be. And it actually wouldn't look terrible right now, but you don't even get that this year. It's going to be interesting, Jay. I'm, I'm going to actually be at the Knicks game tomorrow. So I'm going to, it's, it's only going to be like my third one this year. So I will be there for that. When are you going? I won't be at that one. I'm getting my my second COVID vaccine shot on Wednesday. So I have a feeling I might not be feeling the greatest that night, and I don't need to be in the Smoothie King Center with that. It took me three uh, days. It took me three days to feel right for the second oh, okay. shot. Okay, so I'm not looking forward to this. But um, that's why I'm going to skip the game. Are you going to be wearing Nick stuff? No, 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 no. I don't, <laughs> we're not there to root. I have never worn anything Nick's related or anything to the stadium, <laughs> to the arena on a game day, but – um, it's fun I, that they're I, they're decent and good this year. Like I'm I'm a, I'm actually this, I know this is off topic, but I'm a big believer in what we're seeing out of Julius Randall here. And Thibodeau should almost get Coach of the Year for making him care about defense and for 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 turning him into a guy who just wasn't stat hunting. And I mean, Julius was you know we saw it, and I understand the situation too when he was in New Orleans. He was trying to get a contract, but yeah, I mean, big time. To, to get him to buy in from last year to this year, yeah, it's been a huge difference for them. And I will say this. This is the kind of team that the Pelicans hate to play because they are not deep and talented, but they will fight for 48 minutes. And that's the thing. And if the Pelicans turn the ball over, the Knicks have guys like RJ Barrett, like Frank Nilakina, like who can get out and run and finish in transition. And that's the Pelicans. Like you said, if they don't run back, 
And we've seen nope. it. They've gotten beaten points in the paint. They've got beaten points in transition. They've got beaten, beaten in points on turnovers, even in these games that they've won. And that's been something that's been a little odd too. Uh, it's something that'll doom you if you have a slightly off night and you can't do that against a Knicks team that can definitely burn you in transition and is significantly improved from years past. Jake, thank you so much for your time, man. We went a little longer than I thought, but I appreciate the conversation. And I really enjoyed it. And I'm um, glad you could make your first appearance so hard in the paint, man. Um, I know. I it's uh, I miss talking with you. We'll get you on Locked on Pelican soon when I'm not recording at like 1130 at night and uh, repay the favor because this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's like I said, it's been too long because we used to do this every like before games. Like people would like literally, yeah, you got there around 4 30, I'd be there around five, and then we'd just be in baseline sitting in the seats talking and walking around. And, and, and I mean, I miss that too. I miss that part of the game. It's that whole the whole environment of it. And I think we've all lost out on that. But I'm glad to get this opportunity to talk to you today. Please tell the folks how they can follow you and catch the pod. Yeah, of course. Just search Locked on Pelicans wherever you get your podcast. It's literally everywhere. It's there Monday through Friday for you. Also, five days a week talking Pelicans, about 20 minutes or so. So hopefully keep it short enough for everyone to try and grab a listen. Then you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Nola Jake. All right, my brother. Thank you so much for Jake Madison. I am David Grubb. Y'all know how to get at me at DM Grubb on Instagram and Twitter and HITP with DG.com. And Harden to Paint is available wherever you get your podcast. Share it, subscribe, rate, all those things. And until the next time, we'll see you then. Paint.